So we're, we're, uh, we're walking through the, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. So this morning we're at Revelation chapter 2, 12 through 17. You can follow along behind me, or if you've got it with you, you can follow along that way. It'll be on the screen in front of you. Um, yeah, I was going to do a thing before I read the Scriptures, but I'm going to do the thing after we read the Scriptures. I don't know why I told you that. Just made a switch in my brain, wanted to let you all in, so welcome to my world. Before we read, let's pray together. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for this book. Uh, thank you for the scriptures, for the ways in which you speak to us in them and through them, through these, through these ancient words, through these ancient letters, through... Uh, which in some ways seems strange to us. It's almost like a whole different world, and yet we enter into it, and somehow, some way, Spirit, you show up, and you, you take these words, and you meet us where we are in our own hearts and create something new. And so we humbly ask for, for that to happen this morning. Um, change us and transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Revelation 2, starting at verse 12, to the angel in the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious, to the one who overcomes. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. We will go that far. So much in there. Uh, we're going to get to a lot of it. There's some of it that I'm hoping I can bring up later on in the weeks coming. So uh, we're not going to get to the white stone thing because this is already, we're going to go along. I'm sorry. Um, so hang in there. We're going to get through a lot this morning. And some of the stuff at the beginning is endlessly fascinating to me, and I'm hopeful that it's fascinating to you too as we begin to walk through it. But first, a story. When I was in high school, my high school youth group uh, met in this room called The Loft. It was a new part of our building at Meredith Drive Reform Church, and it was the top floor, the third floor of this new addition to the building. We called it The Loft. Get it? The top floor, The Loft. Not a very creative name, but back then we thought it was so cool. Beside the point, on the wall in the loft, there was this rectangular picture. 
And there was this, it was this picture of nothing discernible, at least at first glance. It was just a number of, of shapes and colors and, and things that it just looked weird. It was computer generated, I think, back then in the mid-90s. Anything that was computer generated was like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. That was, anyway, that was back then. We're old now. It's the way it is. It's fine. But the longer you stood in front of this picture, right, and just stared at it in this weird way, all of a sudden, after a little while, this 3D image would pop out at you. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Have you seen these things? Yeah. Oh my goodness, all of a sudden it would pop out and you'd be like, that is so cool. I think this is how I learned how to cross one eye and keep the other ones there. Because you try to cross your eyes and let them come out, and then all of a sudden there it was. Anyway, but all of a sudden you stare at this thing, it doesn't look like anything, and there's a 3D image that pops out at you, and it was so cool. These letters to the churches in Asia Minor in Revelation well, they're, they're kind of like that. And it's the, the original hearers, the original recipients of these letters, it wouldn't have been that way. It would have been like, oh, I totally know what you're talking about. Like, that makes total sense. They would have seen it right away. The image would have been popped out right away. They didn't have, but for us, we have to do a little work. We have to ask ourselves some questions. What is going on here? What are some of the religious ideas that are being circulated, that are being lived into? What are some of the rites, some of the rituals, some of the prevailing thoughts of the time? Uh, we understand, once we understand a little bit about that, all of a sudden, like it begins to pop. Like this 3D image sort of comes out and you're like, oh, that's totally what that means. It like gives these letters a little sizzle is what I like to think of it. It's like, ooh, that's nice. So we're going to do, do a little work. Can we do a little work? Can you hang with me for about 10 minutes here? Because again, I find this stuff endlessly fascinating. So apparently, Pergamum was an incredibly religious city. So there were temples and altars all throughout the city during the first century. Like everywhere you looked, there would have been temples and altars that were all over the place dedicated to the worship of all different kinds of gods and goddesses. So we're going to talk about some of those and some of the rituals and some of the symbols and some of the ideas that would have surrounded them all over the place. First, we'll talk about Athena. So there was a temple there that was dedicated to the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war. So we know Athena from Greek mythology. Have you heard Athena before? Well, apparently Athena didn't like to fight. So but she was a brilliant war strategist. And so here we have this temple uh, dedicated to Athena, the god of wisdom and war. So we have a goddess who endorses war, who endorses violence as a way to get things you want, who endorses the power of the sword, right? So war, violence, all tied up in this religious idea. Okay, got that? Next, we have, this one's my favorite. I should have saved it for last, but this one's my favorite. We have a temple in Pergamum dedicated uh, to the god Asclepius. What a cool name that is, Asclepius. And his main temple was less of a temple and more of a hospital, sort of a hybrid between a, a temple and a hospital. So Asclepius was known as the god of healing. So here's what would happen. If you were sick or something was wrong with you, you would go to the temple hospital and you would see the priests, 
right? And there, you would, be, you would tell them what you were suffering from, and they would put you in this room. It was more like, a, more like sort of a, a relaxing spa sort of place. And there, you would go into a deep sleep or a deep trance uh, based on, uh, our guess is, some substances that they would give you. And while you're in this deep sleep, this deep trance, you would have visions about how Asclepius would come and heal you. After you were done, you would, go to the, you would go to the priests of Asclepius and you would say, this is the vision I had. And they, they would give you all sorts of different rites and rituals that you would need to perform in order to get Asclepius to actually heal you, right? So then here's what would happen. If you were healed, let's say you had a broken arm and you needed your arm healed and you had a vision about how Asclepius was going to heal you. Once you were healed, you would commission a sculptor to sculpt a sculpture of the body part that was healed. Say that 10 times fast. You would commission a sculptor to sculpt the sculpture of the body part. And then you would bring that body part to the temple of Asclepius as a way of saying, thank you, Asclepius, for healing me. Here is a sculpture of the body part that was healed. And you would leave that at the temple. Get this. In Corinth, in the city of Corinth, they discovered 30,000 different sculptures of body parts in the rubble around there. 30,000 different sculptures of body parts. Now listen to this. The church in Corinth is the church to which Paul wrote something like this. The church is a body made of different parts. How cool is that? I find that cool. So anyway... So Asclepius is, also means snake, right? The snake is often seen in our culture as a symbol of healing and medicine. How many of you seen the snake associated with healing and medicine? Anyone want to Google the EMT logo really quick? Somebody Google, like you have permission, get, somebody get your phone out and Google the EMT logo. We have a doctor in the house, she knows she can confirm that there's a snake on there. Or somebody Google the registered nurse logo. And what you'll find on there, anybody have it? Is there a snake on there? Oh, there's a snake. Asclepius is where that comes from. How cool is that? So the God of healing, right? Okay, here's another one. Next, we have, a, we have another temple in Pergamum. And it's, uh, it's dedicated to Demeter the goddess of grain. I've heard some people call her the goddess of groceries. So funny. So she's the God you thank for the earth bringing forth crops and the harvest uh, with which you provide food for your family, your daily meal. So here's what you do. You go to the temple to the goddess Demeter, the goddess of groceries, and you would bathe in bull's blood in the blood of a bull, you would bathe as a way of saying, thank you, Demeter, for my daily meal. How would you like to be a part of that? Ew. So that's what was going on. Next, we have Dionysus. Okay, this is a lot. Hang with me, because we're going to get some pop later on. Okay? Next, we have Dionysus, the goddess of wine and fertility. Wine and fertility. Can you guess what these 
religious practices sort of felt like, what they involved, wine and fertility. So, let's talk about it. You would go to like this giant party or celebration, right? You would, you would drink wine that was said to be infused with the spirit of Dionysus. It was said that the priests of Dionysus could turn water into wine. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Right? So, Dionysus had all sorts of stories and plays written about him. There was a theater right next to uh, the temple that housed 10,000 people. So you would go, and at the base there was like this movable stage, we think. Right? So you would go there, and you would watch a play about Dionysus. Right? And the power of celebration, the power of party. And then afterwards, there were these massive celebrations where you would drink lots of wine and get cozy with people, if you know what I mean. We'll skip past that really quickly. Use your imagination. No, don't. Um, <laughs> Zeus had a temple there too. Right? Zeus had a temple there. Uh, it was like this massive block-shaped U. You can Google Zeus's temple in Pergamum and you'll find a replica of it. So it was this massive block-shaped U that was sort of in the shape of a throne. So Zeus, the king of the gods, needed a place to sit over which to rule all of the other little gods and all of the people, right? So you had this massive temple that was in the shape of a throne that Zeus could sit on to rule everything. That's not it. We're going to keep going. We're almost done. And then we'll get some pop. So, beginning with Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperors had begun to talk about themselves as gods on earth, right? Augustus had an altar built in a temple built to himself uh, in the city of Pergamum. So, the Roman emperors had begun to talk about themselves as sons of God sent by the gods to earth to bring about a universal era of peace and prosperity. So, these cities in Asia Minor they would all compete with one another. Who could give Caesar the most honor and the most glory? Because when you had Caesar visit your city, if Caesar was super impressed by all the honor and the glory that you were, that you were giving him, then the Caesar might give you all sorts of Caesar gold so that your city might get even more things so that you can have nice things as a as a city. So on top of that, Caesar also gave the Roman governors of each of these cities uh, power of the sword, which meant that they had capital punishment as an option to make sure that people would do things Caesar's way in order to sort of force people or coerce people to do things the way that Caesar wanted them done. So all of that, all of that in one city, all of it. If you walk through the streets of Pergamum, you would see, you would be surrounded by all these gleaming temples and altars built to the worship of all these different gods with all of these rites and rituals that you had to perform in order to get these gods to do for you what you wanted them to do for you. It would have been, it, it's like you couldn't get away from it. Everywhere you looked, it would have been like this suffocating feel to it. Are you getting a sense of what life was like in Pergamum? Oh my goodness, it was everywhere. Okay, so now let's read a little bit through this letter and see if we can get some pop. All right? 
These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus seems to be saying, you think Caesar has a sword. Like, I got a sword. More on the sword later. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Remember what the altar to Zeus looked like? Looked like this massive throne on which Zeus could sit to rule over the city and rule over the other gods and rule over the people. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Antipas, we can probably infer that Antipas was put to death because of his faith by the sword, capital punishment, because he didn't go along to get along, right? Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Remember the Dionysus parties? Dionysus, the god of wine and fertility. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Two weeks ago, we ran up against the Nicolaitans. I said, We'll talk about them later. Let's talk about them now. The Nicolaitans. Okay, here's the deal. We don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans thought or taught, but we have a pretty good idea, so this is our best guess. Apparently, there were some people in the church who were known as the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans basically said, eh, it's fine. It's okay. Like, you can eat a little food, sacrifice to idols. It's really not that big a deal. Just go ahead. Like, a little sexual immorality is fine. It's not like you do it all the time. Plus, it's just casual. It's not a big deal. It's not all that big a deal to go to, to the temple of Asclepius and, and go through those rituals. I mean, you want to get healed, right? There's something wrong with you. You want to get healed. So, it's not that big it's not that big a deal, right? You're just asking for a little help. Who wouldn't ask for a little help? It's not like you're worshiping anyway. It's just sort of, it's helpful. And really, you can go to the Dionysus parties. It's fine. Who doesn't like a party? Just let loose once in a while. And you can go to the parades when Caesar comes through. You can call him Lord. It's not like you mean it in your heart. It's just fine. Besides, if you didn't, other people would think you're like really religious and weird. So it's fine. Just go through the motions. It's not like you really mean it. The Nicolaitans were like, eh, no big deal. Just go for it. And to that, Jesus says, repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, which generally means the truth. He who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So they were totally surrounded by all of these temples and altars and images and symbols and rites and rituals that communicated to them. This is where you come. This is what you give your life to in order to get 
what you want for life. We don't have those temples surrounding us. We don't, we don't have gleaming temples and altars of all of these different gods surrounding us. That just seems weird. But, but when you really begin to think about it, our world really isn't that much different. We just don't call these things, these ideas, rituals we go through, we just don't call them religious. And we don't call them gods. But they're everywhere. I'll just give you a few, just two examples, and then maybe you can think of others. So Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war, the god of violence, if you want something, you get it through violence, through the power of the sword. What do we do with our enemies? What do we do? We call them names. We dehumanize them. And we drop bombs on them. That's what we do. What do we do on, on like a, I mean, we see this on the, at the highest levels of leadership in our own country. What, what does one side do to their enemies, their enemies, as if we're not all on the same side here? What does one side do to the other side? We call names, we drop verbal bombs, and it's a back and forth, and it's violence, and it's endless, and oh, it's disheartening. What do we do on a personal level with our own enemies, with the people on our, on our block, in our neighborhood, at work, at school, well, we call them names. We, we gossip about them to bring them down so that it feels like we are higher up. We talk about people as less than human. I mean, the god of Athena, we don't call her the god of Athena. We don't call her Athena. We don't call her a god, but we worship her ways, and we enter into her rituals, do we not? But the way of Jesus is different. What did Jesus teach? What did Jesus say? He said, let me see if I remember it correctly. He said, I think it's love your enemies. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Serve your enemies. Give yourself to those who are different from you. Dionysus, the god of wine and fertility. You want to be fulfilled? Come to these parties. Consume these substances. Take advantage of others. Right? Just do what feels good. Just do what feels good. I, do I really have to explain this one? Like all sorts of substances are available to us, all kinds. And, and sex is used to sell virtually everything. Pornography is more available today than, than ever, right? But the way of Jesus says, this life isn't really about you. You're not the center of your own world. Other people aren't there just 
to take advantage of so that you can do what just feels good to you. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. You, do you want to be truly happy? Don't just grasp after the things that you want because it feels good. No, if you want to save your life, he says, you're going to have to lose your life. Give yourselves away to ensure that, that other people have what they need to become what God has intended them to be. Give your life to the flourishing of other people because it's the only way in which you will actually flourish yourself. Oh, man. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we, how do we live? How do we follow Jesus faithfully? How do we, how do we give our lives to, to the way of Jesus? And how do we overcome? How do we become victorious? Well, two things. First, maybe we dwell on that sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. We dwell on the truth of the teachings of Jesus. Things like love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. For those who want to be first, you must become last. If you want to save your life, you got to lose your life, and on, and on, and on, and on. Maybe that can be transformative. If we dwell on that, a few years ago, Facebook did this thing where they manipulated people's news feeds. They probably don't do that at all anymore. No. But they did like this official thing. Maybe you heard about it. They, removed, they either removed all the positive posts from people's news feeds or they removed all the negative posts from people's news, news feeds just to, just to see what would happen. And here's what they noticed. When they removed all of the positive posts from people's news feeds, they found that people posted negative posts more regularly. When they removed all of the negative posts and had only positive posts, people regularly posted more positive things on their news feeds. In other words, what people saw, what people consumed on their news feeds had a huge impact on their moods, on the things that they would post, their interactions with people, what they filled their minds with actually affected the way they lived, the way they interacted with people. How fascinating in that is that? Maybe some of you are thinking, I need to take a break. So how do we, how do we avoid some of the things that just come at us? They're just everywhere. They just come at us. Maybe we dwell on the sword of Jesus' mouth. We dwell on the truth of the teachings of, of Jesus. In Philippians, listen to what Paul wrote. Finally, my brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Dwell on those things. Whatever we fill our minds with actually, actually impacts how we live in this world. So that's the first thing, but maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe it's bigger and broader than that. Here's the second thing. Here's, here's I think, how we remain faithful. Right? 
Jesus says, to the one who overcomes or conquers, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. So manna is the thing that God provided for the Israelites while they were wandering in the wilderness way back in the Old Testament. You can read stories about that there. It's like the stuff that showed up. It's like, what is this? But it gave them sustenance. It gave them energy. It gave them, it it sustained them. It gave them life, manna, right? I will give you what you need, Jesus says. I will sustain you. So maybe it's not simply enough to just avoid those things that are detrimental to our life. Maybe it's Maybe it's bigger, maybe it's bolder, maybe it's broader than that. Maybe Jesus is calling us to look around at the world and find those things in the world that just, that we know in our bones, in the deepest parts of ourselves, they're just not right. And we begin to work with the divine in order to to make them right again, to become victorious, to overcome. Oh, you see injustice in this world. Give your life to that. Do something about that. Overcome that. Oh, you notice that racism is still a thing? Yeah, give your life to that. Overcome that. Oh, you notice that there are, that there are children in this world who, who don't eat, that we have an economic system set up to where some people just can't make a living. Give your life to that overcome that. Work to climb that mountain and tear it down. Give your life to that. Work to conquer that, right? I take a step of faith, Jesus says, and I will give you some of the hidden manna. I will give you what you need. I will be there to sustain you in the middle of that. Look, we live in a world full of all sorts of things that can be destructive to our lives. We all know about that. You don't need need a sermon to talk about that. You're really smart people. Sometimes it's best to avoid those things, to protect ourselves. Sometimes, hey, let's dwell on the word of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and that sort of gives us something good to contemplate, to make our lives something different so that it actually impacts our lives. And sometimes God is calling us to do something more, to overcome some things, to work with God to set them right. And when we take steps of faith to do just that, to overcome things in this world that we think are wrong, sometimes that in and of itself, because it's too big for us, guess what we're doing? We're now leaving room for God to show up. We're now leaving room for God to do something with us and alongside of us. And God says, if you do those things, I'll be there. I'll support you. I'll give you, I'll sustain you. I'll give you some of that hidden manna. You don't know where it comes from. You don't even know what it tastes like. But oh my goodness, it gives you life. It gives you energy. And it is the thing that keeps you going. Mm. I feel like we've experienced a little bit of that over the last few months, even in this space. Believe it or not, I don't know if you've felt that way too, but it's kind of felt that way to me. I think God is calling us to something bigger, to get involved in taking that which is broken, to make it right again. God will sustain us and give us what we need. Let's pray.